We often think of ourselves as merely individuals. We think of our faith as just a personal faith. It's, it's just between me and God. But Scripture, Scripture calls us one as a people. Scripture calls us the church, a body. It calls us to a faith that is united to other people. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, our Savior, through His perfect shed blood. But the Scriptures also teach that we have been reconciled to one another. That we are now one in Christ. Unity, it is, it is by God's design. It is a, a very reflection of Him. God Himself is one. Yet He is three. God has existed for all of eternity in three distinct persons. Yet He is one God. Perfect unity for all of eternity. Our triune God. And as His image bears, those who are created in His image, He desires that each of us would reflect the unity that He has within Himself. That we as believers are to be united with one another. The Scriptures, it describes us as a church. The Scriptures describe believers as an ecclesia, a church. Also, we see in Scripture we are called a body. Think of the imagery there. Like a physical body. All members must be united in order for that body to function. If members are not functioning members of the church, then that body would not function correctly. Just like your body would not function correctly. All of us united as a body under our head, Jesus Christ. Unity is what the Scriptures teach us. Unity is God's desire for His church. That word church itself is a people. There's no I in church. There's no I in church in this sense that there are not lone wolf Christians. And we often can think this way. As I said, we live in an individualistic society. We have that that same mindset, we think it's just God and me. The church has been permeated, teaching that the church can just be you. And people often say the church is not a building, it's a people. And that's a true statement. I can say amen to that. But what people typically mean when they say that is that I'm the church all by myself. That I can be at home, I can sit in front of my TV, and I can be the church all by my lonesome. But that's not what the church is. It truly is a people, not a building. But by its very definition, it is a united people, a gathered people, a congregated people. William Tyndale, when he translated the first... Bible into English from the Greek New Testament, he translated that word church as congregation. A congregated people. We've, we've kind of lost that meaning. We don't understand that. The, the church means a, a gathered, a congregated people. 
So the church isn't a building. But it's also not an individual. It is a body of people made up of individuals. Implied in the very meaning of church is unity. Ironically, we love to say that, that church is not a building. And true, it is not a building in a physical sense. But the Scriptures teach us that we are a building in a spiritual sense. In a metaphorical sense. Ephesians 2 explains that. Ephesians 2.20 Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole world, or in, sorry, in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. There is the church. Did you hear it? An actual building there. Of course, this is symbolic, this is imagery, this is metaphorical. But it tells us that we are being built into a building. And what is that building? The holy temple in the Lord. I want you to think about that imagery there. Similar to the imagery of the body. If we are being built up into a building, it implies that we are united. It implies that we are serving, that we are working together, that we are, we are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and His Word, and we are being fit together like stones in a building. And we are growing up as the church into the temple of the Lord. It is amazing to think about. This is not a disjointed building with some stones are here by their lonesome. That's a mess and it's, it's all over the place. No. This is Christ. And He is building us into a united people that together make the temple a living God. It's amazing to think about. So why do I bring it up? I bring up all this to teach us that God, He desires for His church to be a, a united people. United in Christ. United in the truth. This church here in Philippi, they were, they were struggling with division. And we will see that as we go through the book. One of the very reasons Paul wrote this letter was to call them to unity. Two church members there were fighting. And this was most likely spreading throughout the whole body, causing factions and divisions among them. As we look at the Apostle's Word, we need to remember this point. As we go through this book of Philippians, we need to remember this. That they were, they were struggling with division and Paul was calling them to unity. We need to remember that's why he is calling them to unite. Another struggle here that's revealed in this morning's text. That the struggle also with this church was there was coming persecution. There was coming suffering. There was a growing threat towards the church from persecution outside world. Paul called them false teachers here in this book, and we will see that as we go through it. They threatened the lives of this church. And so, all the more reason that they were to be united at this time as they faced uncertain times. That would be God's desire 
When the times are uncertain, when the times are a struggle, he would desire for his church to be in unity. It's the exact opposite desire of Satan. He, he would desire for any church to be divided, especially in certain times. He would desire for them to divide over secondary matters. This is really his playbook with inside, inside the church. Divide church, make them weak, make them vulnerable, make them hate one another. And when, when they're all on their loan, then devour them like a prowling lion. When I say secondary matters, I mean those that have nothing to do with saving faith. As a church, we must always remember what is of first importance in our faith. And that is the matters that have to do with saving souls of salvation, of, of an eternity, either in destruction or an eternity with God. These are the most important, the first aspect, the, the most important things of our faith that we, we should always be united around. And it is absolutely never okay to compromise on the truth that saves. We are never to unite void of the true saving gospel. Ultimately, this is antichrist, and it is detrimental to the souls of the lost, and it is detrimental to the church. We're seeing this right now all over our land. Many churches are uniting with Black Lives Matter. Now don't get me wrong, I agree with their statement, Black Lives Do Matter, but that organization does not truly even stand for that. They are an anti-Christ, anti-gospel organization, and as a church, we can never unite with someone that doesn't even believe in the gospel. And ultimately, they say black lives matter, but they support the slaughter of the unborn. Single week in this country, far more black people die of abortion than any other cause. But yet we see churches compromising on the truth, on the saving matters of Christ and Him crucified and uniting with an organization that is godless. J.C. Ryle says this, Unity without the gospel is worthless unity. We need to remember that. Unity without the gospel is worthless unity. He goes on to say, It is the very unity of hell. I agree with him. Unity without the gospel is worthless because people will perish. People will spend an eternity in hell. People will be lost. So what are the first matters? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is we have to get these three things right. That we are saved by the grace of God alone. 
No works. This is a gift from the Almighty God. And the way that we receive that great gift is through faith alone. It is through trusting in Christ alone. Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. This is where the church must stand and they can do no other. This is the bedrock foundation of our faith. Grace, a gift. Faith, the conduit to which we receive that gift. And Christ, the only name under heaven to which we can be saved. The way, the truth, and the life. We're talking about unity, but I want to say this. We must divide when people reject the foundation of our faith. So as Christians, we're not, we're not going and looking for cults to join up with. We're not looking for those people who say, yes, Christ, but let's add works. We're not going out into society and saying, we're going to unite with secular organizations that deny our very Lord and Savior. So in first matters of the gospel, unity. But when rejected, division. But let's talk about secondary matters. Tertiary matters. We can still stand as united with our fellow believers in these things. And as a body, we must be united. Satan would desire for us to hate each other because we have differing opinions. What? You believe that about the end times? I can't go to church here. Satan would desire for us to divide over things like speaking in tongues. Over making sure everyone reads the right Bible translation. Or that you must baptize the right way. Or you must baptize at the right age. He would desire the church to divide over secondary matters. Last time I checked, none of these things save us. Christ alone saves us. He would have us divided over people's differing opinions on the coronavirus. He would have us divided over our style of music. I like hymns. I like contemporary. Well, we can't be friends. <laughs> he would have us divided over secondary matters. Satan desires the church to be nitpicky and strain gnats. To be self-righteous and full of pride. For members to believe that they're right in their own mind and have no ears to hear anyone else. To be weak and distracted with secondary matters. A perfect place for a church split. A divided church, you can take this to the bank, is a weak church. But Paul calls the body to unity. He calls us to unity because he wants us to better fight the enemy. To better spread the gospel of grace. 
to better stand firm as we face opposition. Is there ever a time in American history that we ever needed to stand more firm to face opposition than now? We need to be united. We need to be united to better suffer for Christ's sake. To better face persecution for Jesus Christ. We can see a call from this text this morning for unity within the church. Paul, he gives us ways that that will promote unity within the church. I've listed out six of them. In verse 27, he says that we're to be model citizens of the kingdom of God. Also in verse 27, he says we're to stand firm in one spirit. Another statement in verse 27 is that we are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And in verse 28, he says we are to resist fear, standing strong. In verse 29, he says that we are to suffer or be persecuted for the sake of Christ. And in verse 30, he says we are to engage in the same battle as the Apostle Paul. This was to be this church's united focus. I hope to look at all of these points. We won't get to them all today, or we'd be here all all day. We'll go over them in a few sermons. As I read this text, in the simplest form, what I, what I think the apostle is telling the church is to stop bickering and get to work for God's kingdom. Point number one is found in verse 27. There, Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says there, let your conduct. English language does not translate this verse well. It does not do its service. Here this this Greek word, the English translates into conduct or behavior or whatever your translation says, is actually speaking of citizenship. It would more mean be a model citizen in your nation. And the nation that is being spoke of here is God's kingdom. And so Paul, he is calling Christians to be model citizens inside of the kingdom of God. John MacArthur notes on it saying this, Live as a citizen of the kingdom to which you belong. With all the rights and all the privileges, yes. But with all the duties and responsibilities for the good of God. All. This is what it means to be a model citizen in the kingdom of Christ. He goes on to say, living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. I must first mention as we look into the meaning of this text here, that this is not an obtainable goal in life. You will never live a life in this life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's an unobtainable goal. 
We in and of ourselves are not worthy of Christ and we are not worthy of his death for us. And we are not able to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But according to this verse, according to the command from this verse, that should be all of our pursuit in life. We should be pursuing excellence in this life. But as I said, we will never reach that goal. Living a life worthy of the gospel, that should be the response of every single person that has been saved by the grace of God. This should be every believer's response who's, who's received the rich mercy, the rich grace of God that has received new life in Christ. Remember what path you were on before Jesus saved you. You were destined to hell. This should be our reasonable response. You were the, the wretch the song referred to in Amazing Grace. Each and every one of us were on that, that pathway to hell. And God had every right to take our breath from us any moment of our life. And yet rich in mercy, rich in love, rich in grace towards us, He saved a wretch like you and me. And what should be our response? Right here. To live a life that is worthy of the gospel. A heart of gratitude. A heart that just says, I have nothing except for Christ. Let me give everything that I am to Him. To live a life that is honoring to God. Worthy of the gospel. So what does that look like? In short, it's loving God and loving others. Remember the context. Remember the letter. Remember the occasion to which it is written. They were to put away fighting. They were to put away the gossip. They were to put away the backbiting, the division, the dissension among members. And instead, what were they to do? Love one another. There's a similar command that really helps us to understand this verse in Ephesians chapter 4. If you'd like, you can turn there. It's just a, a few pages before the book of Philippians. In Ephesians chapter 4, we see the Apostle Paul once again writing to a different church, a similar message. Once again, he's a prisoner, most likely writing that book at the same time he's writing the book of Philippians. He says there, as a prisoner, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he tells us how. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in loving, in love, being diligent to pres preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. I had a different translation in my notes than I had at the screen. <laughs> Sorry about that. So how do we pursue this life that is worthy of the gospel? We read it there in Ephesians chapter 4. What does it say? It says humility. So this is the opposite of pride. This is opposite of our nature. Humility. 
The attitude that realizes I'm a sinner saved by grace. Apart from Christ, I am absolutely nothing. Without Christ, I I know nothing. Without Christ, all I can ever do is sin. I'm bankrupt without him. And so with that attitude, then our lives should then reflect that. And that is what humility is. I am what I am because of him. Realizing how often we fall short of God's glory, we should then live humble lives. There's a teaching out there. It's a false teaching in many churches. It's called perfectionism. I strongly disagree with it. Every single day of our lives, we fall short of the glory of God. There is not a day of your life that you do not sin against the holy God, even as a new creation in Christ. You desperately need Christ. And because His grace is new every morning, you need to live a humble life because of it. You have nothing without Him. Left to yourself, you are a sinner destined for the pit of hell. His grace should cause us to live a humble life. And that humble life, that humility, that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, he continues, he says, gentleness. He says, patience. He says, important one here, bearing with one another in love. This is so important to the unity of the church. Do you desire to bear with your fellow believer? I want to push you this morning. Do you know that people in the church are not perfect? The world tells us that all the time, right? Did you know as a minister I sin every single day? You know, there will be times in the future where Ben will fail you, I will fail you, that the people that you love in this church, they will fail you. You know that people in your midst right now, they believe wrong-headed things, unbiblical things. Sometimes people get caught up with emotion. They act irrationally. The call for the church is is not that the very first time someone does something that you don't like, I'm leaving. The very first time that someone upsets you or your pastor preaches something that you disagree with, I'm out of here. What does it mean to bear with one another in love? That word before... Patience, gentleness, understanding that this is, a, this is another jar of clay. This is another sinful human being that needs your grace. The same way that God has shown you grace. You know, just like in marriage, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. You know, a lot of people find, well, I got really discontent with my church. I went down the road and I found a church that was just like them. They had all the same problems. I really thought that one would be perfect. It doesn't work that way. What's Scripture telling us to do? The conduct that's worthy of the gospel. It is to bear with one another in love. 
So the next time there's drama in the church, ask your brother and sister this. Are you willing to bear with them? Are you willing to live a life that is worthy of the gospel by bearing with this person that God loves? Do we think like that? God has poured out His immeasurable love on this church member. And all I can think about is how mad I am at them. God loves them even when they sin because they're in Christ. We need to think like this. How do we treat people that Christ, he, that Christ, he paid for all of their sins, even the sins that are within the church? Are you willing to bear with them the way that God bears with you? I'm so grateful that God is not like us. I have no idea why he gives me breath the next morning, but he does. He's willing to bear with our iniquity every single day of our life. He's a gracious and loving God. Are you willing to bear with the members of the church the way that God does with you? This should be our heart. This is a conduct in life that is worthy of the gospel. You might ask why. Why would we do this? Why would we desire this? Well, remember, unity. Unity. Ephesians 4 went on to say, it said, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Unity. This is the very thing that Paul calls them to. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. That's the second point. Standing firm in one spirit, in one mind. This is what he is calling the church to. To stand firm together. Stand firm, church. One spirit, one mind. In other words, saying that, that they're believing the same way. They're, they're so firmly planted in the word of God that it is as if they have one spirit and one mind about them. So instead of attacking each other, instead of complaining about each other, instead of staying against each other, what's the text tell us? They are united. They're standing together. And they so believe in this common faith that they're of one mind and one spirit in Christ Jesus. In other words, this church here, Paul is calling them to stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil. They were to stand for righteousness, for the truth, and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were not to compromise as a body. See, we're not looking for false unity built on lies. They were to stand firm on the word of God. Stand firm on God's word, the foundation of all truth. And as Christians, we should accept nothing less. In the context, Paul is, he's going to bring up here the opposition there in the Philippian church. They were false teachers. We know from studying this book that you can see that they were Judaizers. 
Judaizers were men that taught, yes, Christ, yes, grace, but you need to add some works to it also in order to be right with God. You must add to the perfect work of Jesus Christ. I had a question for you this morning. How do you add to something that's perfect? You don't. It's perfect. Any addition would be subtraction. But these men, these Judaizers, they taught you need Christ and you also need circumcision to be right with God. You need Christ, but you also need to keep the Mosaic law in order to be right with Christ. Remember those three points I talked about earlier. Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. These men, they rejected faith alone. But what was Paul's message to the church? Unite with them? No. There's a clear division there. What was his message to the church? Stand firm against these men. Stand firm in the word, in one spirit, in one mind, against these false teachers. Stand. In order to get this right, though, we have to know the difference between those first matters and those secondary matters. See, these men were distorting first matters of the faith. Matters of salvation. Incredibly important. And they were a threat to the church because of that very reason. And because of that, this church needed to stand firm. Why? Because people's souls are at stake. False teaching leads astray. False teaching damns people. False teaching is dangerous. Telling people that they they need Christ, but they also need circumcision is a lie from the pit of hell. And Paul says in the book of Galatians, let them be accursed. If anyone adds to the perfect work of Christ, let them be damned. It's very important. So this church, they were to be strong together. Division would have meant their defeat. So he's calling them to be strong together. What else is he saying? The next point would be to strive. And point number three, they were to strive together. That's a military or an athletic term. He's calling them to fight together. They have a common enemy. Do we think like this? We have a common enemy. Like soldiers in a battle, we should be united. Because we have a common enemy. Not only that, we serve, all serve the same king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Think about that imagery of an army. Think about soldiers that went out and they were confused about the mission. That would be a disaster. As Christians, we should not be dividing. We have a common enemy. We must march forward together. We must strive together. This is our call, to be united soldiers for Christ, striving together. You could translate it struggling together. Think about an athlete on a time, on a team. The best teams in sports are those who are united, and they are striving towards the same goal. This should be the church. Victory in unity, defeat in division. 
What was the striving for? What were they to be standing for, Paul tells us? For faith in the gospel. Not only to strengthen their own faith as a church. Side note on that. Yes, when we do things God's way, when we live in the way that God desires us to live, when the church is united, people grow in the faith. People grow in sanctification. People grow more godly. The reason you bear with people, the reason that you're gentle with people, the reason that you are patient with people is because when we do these things, when we're united, when we stand firm, when we are striving together, we will grow in the faith. Not only that, but that this faith can spread to other people. When the church is strong, when the church is united, when the church is striving together, standing firm together, the faith, the Christian faith goes forth and people are saved. If you think about that, that imagery of a team, of an army, of a soldier, when Christians are united to move towards a common goal, the Great Commission is fulfilled in this world. When Christians stand firm on the word of God, when they strive together towards that common goal, people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this should be every one of our desires here today. And this was Paul's desire for them. Whether he was absent with them, he desired unity in that church. Whether he was absent or whether he was present, he said, whether I'm with you, or I'm not, this is my desire for you. I think we're going to stop here today. We'll pick up this study next time. But I want to look at these points we've gone over so far and apply them to our lives. So how do we apply this to the here and now? Today, the churches of America, as I said earlier, we need more than ever, to be united. Look around at America, more divided than ever before. Right now, race is the the big division in our country. And if we're not careful, it will creep in to the church. It will creep in amongst us. We will be tempted to, with worldly wisdom, we will be tempted to look at things Through the lens of the world rather than the lens of God's word. Just think about race. Think about the way our thinking has been conditioned by race. Racism as we know it. Races as we know it. They're social constructs. These are made up. These aren't found in the word of God. These aren't biblical things. The Bible doesn't speak of Races, it speaks of a human race. It speaks of the race of Adam and then the chosen race in Christ. The Bible doesn't divide us into categories based on our skin color. But what does it say about us? That we are all image bearers of God that are made in the image of God. Our skin color does not divide us. But that's what the world is teaching us. 
Instead of the sin of racism like the world wants us to believe, the Bible calls it something. It's called the sin of partiality. Which really is what the Pharisees were guilty of. What these Judaizers we learned of today were guilty of. It's looking down on other human beings, believing that you're better than them. Looking down on them for whatever reason you want to. It's rooted in our pride, in our self-righteousness, in our love for ourselves and hatred towards others. And that sin of partiality will ruthlessly divide. But what does God say about human beings? If you are in Christ, we are all one in Christ. We are equal in Christ. We are to be united in Christ. The scriptures, they do not teach that we are many races in Christ, but that we are a chosen race. Galatians 3.28 makes it clear there is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one. In Christ Jesus. So why do I bring this up? What's this have to do with a sermon? Well, I bring it up because lies are absolutely everywhere. They permeate the culture and they threaten the church of Jesus Christ. And we must be those who stand firm. Remember, we learned that today. Standing firm as a church, what are we standing on? The foundation of God's word. Amen. We must drink it in. We must devour it like bread. We must know it inside and out. And we must know it cover to cover. We as a church can no longer hold positions that are not biblical. We cannot have a worldly lens that is influenced by feminism, Marxism, and secularism. We need to be founded on the word of God. We must have the Word of God as the very standard of our life. And as the church, we must be willing then, learn the Word, and then as a church, let us unite around the Word of God. And we must do this. We must do this. We must do this. We must stand firm as one, in one spirit and one mind. Why? Have you looked out there? What does the scripture say? We as a church, we need to strive together. Why? The culture is lost. The fight out there just got harder for you and me. We, not, we don't want to be the chaff that are blown away when the winds of persecution start blowing towards Christians. We need to stand firm on the Word of God. We need to strive together in unity. Because of what we're facing out there. It grows stronger than it ever has in this nation. We need to do this so we can face suffering together. So we can face persecution together. We need to do it united. Divided we will fall. We must fight for the kingdom. You know what's going to change that out there? The gospel of Jesus Christ. We must fight to save souls. God doesn't want us to do it alone. He doesn't want us to be a lone wolf Christian. 
He wants us to strive together. He wants us to be united together as one. So we need to set aside our differences, be patient with one another in our differences, bear with one another in our differences, in our differences. Seek the Lord with one another. One of my friends recently said on Facebook, and I'll quote him, he said, stop arguing on Facebook over injustice, social justice, etc. And he said, start heading to these protests with gospel tracts, bottled water, with love in your heart towards these sheep without a shepherd. Preach the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. Christians spend far much, too much time arguing and debating over secondary matters. And don't hear me wrong. Debate can be a good thing, and debate is a necessary thing. Iron sharpens iron, and we need to be sharpened by one another. And that comes through disagreement. That comes through us leading each other into what the truth says. But we can get very distracted, and that's where Satan wants us. As a body of believers, we need to get our priorities straight. The world is lost. Let us unite together and fight for them. Let us stir one another in good works. Let us live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and let us always remember that glory, glorious gospel of grace. That Christ, he came, he bled and died for sinners. Let us never forget it. And as we remember that gift, then please... Let us live like it as a church, as kingdom citizens who conduct themselves in a worthy manner.